Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. And I'm excited to be here today with Michael Klarfeld, CFA, and Stephen Rigo, CFA. Michael is a co-portfolio manager for the ClearBridge Dividend Strategy and the ClearBridge Energy MLP Strategy. Great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me, Jeff. And Steve's a senior analyst at ClearBridge and focuses on the financial sector. Also great to be here. Thanks, Jeff. And the topic of today's podcast is the value of dividend growth when interest rates rise. So ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $140 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So welcome, everybody, for the next ClearBridge podcast. And today we're going to talk about, in my opinion, one of the most important aspects of investing, which is dividends, and specifically dividend-growing companies. Now, most people have the misconception, in my opinion, that dividends are boring, right? They're not that exciting. But this really couldn't be farther from the truth. So let's put this in perspective. So anticipation for this podcast, I went out and I looked at the past 90 years of equity returns of the S&P 500. So going all the way back to 1928, and the annualized S&P return is 5.7%. But if you reinvested your dividends, that 5.7% jumps up to 9.7%. That's a huge jump. And uh, if you look at your total return at the end of that time frame, you would have had 30 times more your money with reinvested dividends than not. That's a huge difference, right? Uh, it certainly is. Uh, that we should all have 90 years to compound our dividends. <laughs> Well, I think it was Albert Einstein that said compounding interest is the eighth wonder of the world. Uh, maybe you should change that to compounding dividends. The good thing for most of the listeners here is that companies have been increasing their dividends significantly this year. So, Mike, what's behind this move higher? Well, first off, uh, again, thanks for having us and thanks for emphasizing dividends. Uh, I think it, it is a common misconception that dividends are sort of an afterthought to equity investing uh, when they should be you know, a core tenant. Uh, cash flow is is really the key to investing, whatever type of investing you're doing. And, and dividends represents a meaningful return of cash to shareholders and a meaningful part of the total return. There's a couple different factors that drive dividend growth at different points in the cycle. And, and, and the two things that I think are, are most relevant are sort of payout ratios, which is how much is a, of a company's earnings are they paying out in their dividends? And, and then it's how quickly are their earnings growing? And uh, over the last 10 years, we've seen dividends grow at a very nice rate. And over that time period, it's been a combination of two, the two factors. So coming out of the financial crisis, you had had a lot of companies that had cut their dividends during the crisis and, and had very low payout ratios and the ability to raise those payout ratios. Right. They wanted, they wanted to survive. That's exactly right. So they had to. But since then, you had this initial first uh, pop in dividend growth that came from raising pay, payout ratios. Payout ratios uh, have since normalized. And in the last couple of years, what's driven pay, uh, dividend growth has been income growth. Uh, and so the income growth has been uh, driven by primarily two things. Number one, first off, we've had a pretty good economy. Uh, and the economy, GDP, and economic growth has actually gotten better in the last year or two. Uh, and then this year in 2018, we got a big pop also from the corporate tax cuts. That's right. So corporate tax rate going from 35% to 21% is a really big deal in terms of what that means for the amount of after-tax earnings, right? And so we've seen that after-tax earnings grow pretty meaningfully, particularly in certain sectors like banks, which I think we'll talk about with Steve today. And companies are passing it along to shareholders. So combination of a strong economy uh, and this boost from tax cuts is really driving nice dividend growth. 
And one of the areas that obviously tax cuts have had a big effect in is is financials. I mean, most financials are domestically oriented. They don't really have the opportunity to shelter their income overseas. Um, Steve, maybe give a little bit of perspective on on what financials are doing with that money. Sure. As Michael pointed out, uh, tax cuts have helped uh, aid profits, but you also have a number of other tailwinds, especially in the banking sector, which is historically a very capital-intensive industry. And so what you've had is deregulation, uh, allowing companies to pay out more of their earnings in the form of dividends. And you also have higher interest rates, which is helping spread income for a lot of institutions. So you have much more profit, pre-tax profit dollars that are forming um, after tax now is even better with a lower tax rate. And with less regulation, um, these companies are now raising their payout ratios, as Michael pointed out, too. So you have seen a nice tailwind from um, dividends as well. Uh, but with some of that excess capital, you're also seeing uh, M&A uh, uh, speculation uh, start to pick up. And uh, this is because as you know, technology is changing the space in, in banking, you're starting to see um, banks get together in order to have greater scale to compete against larger entities, um, such as the JP Morgan, Citigroups, and Wells Fargo's of the world. And, and, yeah, and I guess previous to this with Dodd-Frank, they weren't able to, or is it just pretty restrictive that they didn't just see the Sure. The, the economic prospect of it working out. With the um, Dodd-Frank stress test, you had a number of banks that were bound by the annual review and what then was permitted by the Fed. Now with that being raised to you know $100 billion in assets and then moving higher to $250 billion over time, um, now these banks are able to not necessarily at once a year basis, but talk with their regulators on an ongoing basis about their the strength of their balance sheet and their outlook for their earnings and are able to um, take those payout ratios up higher more than once a year and, and, and without just a rigid stress test associated with it. If I could add something, what's interesting about tax cuts is I think the initial emphasis amongst investors with regard to the tax cuts was the impact on the big tech companies and the big pharma companies who had these huge cash balances overseas. And everybody got all excited about, oh, the Googles of the world and the Amazon and the Apples of the world could bring all this cash back and, and do a share buyback or special dividend. Of course. And, and that is definitely a positive. But but it, it, interestingly, that was sort of a one-time positive for those kind of companies. Many of the largest companies that have truly global businesses, you know, think about a consumer staples company who sells globally or uh, a technology company or, or a pharmaceutical company, they had used structures to reduce their tax rates and already kind of had tax rates in the low 20s generally. Financial services and others um, that are more U.S. focused, what's interesting is that obviously a J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo, a Citigroup, a Citigroup's a little different, they're more global, but say a J.P. Morgan or Wells Fargo, Bank of America, they're as large as any company out there, right? I mean, these are huge, huge. mega cap companies. Uh, and yet, because they've been predominantly U.S. focused, th- they weren't really able to do much to optimize their tax rate. Uh, and so what's interesting is that the initial focus around these tax cuts was about what it could mean for these companies that had big cash bounces overseas, which is really just a small subset of, of the market and the economy. And yet for these domestically focused companies, it, it actually has a much bigger ongoing benefit. It's not just this one-time thing of bringing cash home. It's that every every year from here on forward, or at least for the next 10 years, uh, they're going to be able to deliver a lot more of that tax to the bottom line. Or a lot more by that income to the bottom line. I mean, yeah, at the end of the day, when you have more cash, you could do a lot of cash holder friendly activities with that, whether increasing dividends, buybacks, funding your growth, what what have you. Now, I know, Steve, that you've you've recently put out a paper titled The Return of Loan Growth, um, which should boost select banks. Can you talk a little bit about that thesis and maybe a bank or two that, that maybe falls into that thesis? Sure. So, Throughout the um, post-financial crisis, we've seen a lack of quality loan growth, primarily in CNI, which would be lending to, um, you know, the business businesses around the United States. And we think that that lack of organic growth has been an impediment to bank stocks, even though there have been some tailwinds that have emerged recently in terms of, as we talked about, deregulation, higher interest rates. 
And so what we were looking for was a, um, a slowdown in deposit growth, perhaps as a sign that corporations were drawing on liquidity to fund some of their growth. We started to see that in late, uh, late uh, 2017. After that, we started to see a pickup in CNI loan growth. And we think that that was the beginning of a trend that hopefully signifies that the economy was gaining some momentum and some strength. And that could be positive for bank stocks and the multiples that people are willing to pay for them because finally you're seeing the signs of organic growth. So something that's less macro-oriented and more something that these companies are growing earnings because they're growing their balance sheet in a quality way by lending to the businesses, doing what they're supposed to be doing. The sign is they draw that liquidity first, and then you see CNI growth pick up. Which yeah, is interesting. That was that was the general thesis was that balance sheets of corporations across America were flush with cash due to the quantitative easing. And and once we started to see them draw on that cash, we felt that that was the early indication that companies were investing for growth, something that had been a missing a missing ingredient in the post-financial crisis um, kind of growth cycle that we've had. And so sure enough, shortly after that, we started to see loan growth accelerate. And that, that happened early in 2018 which left us more optimistic on bank stocks and bank stock performance. And so some names that we like are some of the more domestically focused names that have larger CNI portfolios, whether it's a PNC Financial or a U.S. Bank Corp. Um, we think that, you know, as these companies can accelerate their loan growth, that that people's optimism around organic growth will pick up and that will translate into higher stock price multiples that we still think are discounted today. And, and if I recall correctly, aren't most CNI loans uh, they're, they're floating rate, right? They're they're tied to like LIBOR or something like that. That that's correct. That's another positive that I think is important not to overlook is that most of them are tied to Primer LIBOR as opposed to your typical CRE loan, which is going to be um, off of say a five year swap rate. So so that also gives you more interest rate sensitivity should the Fed continue to raise rates and LIBOR continue to move, which you've seen in the market. That's interesting because when I think of banks, I usually think about mortgage origination. I don't really, I mean, CNI loan is usually the, the afterthought for me personally. Well, it, what's interesting and not to get off topic is that, you know, the large bank market share of mortgages de- declined significantly since the financial crisis. And so CNI loans are a more important subset of bank balance sheets than they have been um, any time in, in my memory. So how do you determine between a a bank that's going to do better in this environment versus others? I mean, obviously having that exposure to CNI loan growth, um, there are other variables that you look at to to be able to pick the winners and losers? Yeah, so two other things that we think are very important are the quality of your deposit base um, and your loan to deposit ratio. And so banks that we think are able to gather deposits at an attractive rate are probably the most attractive right now because with quantitative easing unwinding, we think that there's becoming a scarcity of deposits in the marketplace. So those high quality institutions we think will benefit much more than those that are stretching for deposits or don't have good deposit gathering. The markets that that banks operate in are key. So we want to make sure that the markets that these banks are in, so whether or not it's the Texas marketplace or the Southeast, the ones that are growing the fastest are obviously going to be the ones that should have the greatest opportunity to grow their balance sheets. Yeah, I think you, we haven't really had to worry about that for, for 10 years now. You have to remember as a, a financials analyst and a bank investor that you Got to actually remember how it works again pre-crisis. Yeah, I mean, um, deposit premiums was something we used to talk about before the financial crisis. And when deposits were everywhere, um, it was other things that people would look at. But the true value of a a banking franchise, we believe, lies on the liability side. Mike, I know that you and and Dividend Strategy has uh, a couple positions in in banks here over the last couple of years. What's behind that? Do Do you see a lot more upside there? We have meaningfully increased our bank exposure over the last several years. If we went back uh, several years ago, we actually had no traditional banks in the portfolio. That had to do with a a couple of things, which would be because of the competitiveness of the banking sector uh, and also some of the risks inherent uh, in it, it's it's a business that uh, historically had been less to our liking than some of the other types of things we focus on, which might be more like a... um, 
consumer staple with a recurring uh, revenue model or a, uh, you know, industrial with, you know, large aftermarket exposure businesses with higher degrees of predictability, lower financial risk. Um, So that's something that kind of kept us away. Uh, You also had a very, you know, tough interest rate environment and then uh, a regulatory burden that that was uh, uh, very high. Over the last few years, we have gone from really having no exposure in the sector to being pretty much kind of market weight. And, and it's because of a combination of, number one, the interest rate environment looking um, more constructive. Number two, the shift in tone from the regulator, which is still a very uh, robust and strong regulator, but one where there's a little more clarity and a little more discussion with the industry about, about the most effective and most helpful types of regulations. A little less punitive, I would say, and a little more constructive potentially mm-hmm. would be a good way of phrasing it. And then the third thing is that's given us more confidence is, while it's banks are still highly complex, and when you look at a large bank with a multi-trillion dollar balance sheet, uh, there is an element of faith uh, in, in investing in terms of, of, of trust and, and confidence in the management team. I mean, tr- you have that with every company, but maybe more so to a degree there. Because of the regulations and what's happened, the, the banks are far better capitalized than they've, they've been in, in, in decades or really ever. Probably my lifetime. Right. It is a much safer uh, proposition now still full of risk and still there's going to be cycles and credit and, uh, you know, we go in with our eyes open. But again, combining – and I probably uh, take them off in the wrong order before, but you combine the much stronger balance sheets, uh, which is probably first and foremost that the capitalization of these companies is much more robust than it's ever been. Um, and then you combine that with an improving rate environment, a, a reduced sort of regulator, punitive regulatory touch – uh, and then kind of coming out of a 10-year headwind of low rates and, and sort of uh, investor apathy towards the space, all of those combined to make us uh, be more constructive and, and, and sort of um, led us to this place of saying this is, not, this is a place where historically we had no exposure and, and, and there's enough good things going on here that, that we want to be participating. It'll never be a, uh, our largest sector by any stretch, you know, banking in particular or something like that. But um, it, there's a lot of reasons we want to be there. And, and so we are there now in a sort of market weight type exposure. And, and, and let's not forget, valuations are very compelling, uh, especially versus every other, most, not every other, but most industries that are out there right now. I, I'd say compelling. I, I don't know where Steve comes in. <laughs> I, uh, you're the host of the show, so you, you get to be a little uh, looser with your words. I think we find them to be compelling and fair. Uh, two years ago, they would have been very, very cheap on things like tangible book and, and things like that. They're not anymore. Uh, but, but we do think they stand out as being reasonably attractive. Yeah, so, I mean, I, I guess I would say, undemanding and still relatively below historic averages, you know, if you go back far enough. Yeah. Well, just to put it in perspective for the listeners, if you think about the Volcker, 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 I'm having trouble saying that word, rule, uh, you have to deal with five different regulators uh, from a bank perspective, and each one of them have a different interpretation on how they want that data. So just cleaning up that alone will probably save uh, quite a bit for the bottom line. Yeah, I mean, hopefully it'll at least slow the rate of expense growth. So if you're getting revenue growth at the same time, you get some operating leverage in the model. Um, those are some of the positives that we've been kind of highlighting here, yeah. So we, we've, we've talked about some positives, right? But uh, if you looked at financials here, they've had a couple disappointing months here in, in 2018, but they've they fared better here recently. Um, what was holding them back? And do you see signs of it turning around? Uh, sure. So I would argue that the flattening yield curve has a bank investors somewhat spooked as that's historically been a sign that you're either late cycle or, or you know, um, recessions are looming. Also, I think, you know, just the, the political unrest with, with potential tariffs has definitely caused people to pause in terms of that organic growth outlook that we, we talked about earlier. Um, and until you kind of resolve those things, I, I, I do think that it's a bit of a, there's a, those macro headwinds are still going to be out there. 
Um, and I do think that there's still a rent-to-own mentality in, in bank stocks. So people, when they become more optimistic on some of those things like uh, GDP growth or the yield curve, that they get involved, but then they also don't invest in them through the cycle like they might with other sectors. And so, you know, if we can consi- consistently put together good fundamental quarters and years, that maybe some of the scars of the past will go away and, and people will realize that we're compounding book value and earnings and there's attractive dividend yields that these banks are investable and their balance sheet risk is lower than it has been any time since the financial crisis. Yeah, really a love-hate relationship, right? Uh, it just depends on the given day of whether investors are shunning or, or well, it warming just, to it. It just seems like that the scars, even though we're, you know, 10 years past the financial crisis, that, that those memories still are long. Yeah. Well, believe it or not, uh, since 2016, banks have outperformed by 30%. It hasn't felt like it. And you had quite a number of periods where you had some drawdowns, but um, that's uh, some pretty sizable outperformance in a two-year period. I was unaware that it was that large. Yeah, no, absolutely. And that's the other, I guess, point I was going to make, uh, or I would add to your comments about performance this year. Given the just tremendous move they had starting right after the election, obviously, you went from a, a sector where before the election, um, you know, it was uh, very out of favor uh, to be charitable. Uh, and then in a very short time period, I mean, Bank of America, I think, almost doubled probably in six months. I mean, this is, a you know, a very large company that, with that kind of move. And the whole sector saw very dramatic moves. And so, um, you know, I think there was a bit of a, you know, uh, just letting a little bit of the steam out of that. And, um, you know, we started this year with rates moving up nicely uh, and, and which should be supportive of banks. And then they eased off. And obviously, the you know, the, the shape of the curve has, has been – uh, unfavorable of late. So I, I think it's it's a combination of those fundamental things and then also just to your point, the move it's had had been pretty tremendous and probably was due for a pullback. Well, as active managers, that does give us opportunities to pick up shares at discounted prices. I think that's absolutely right. Absolutely right. And I think, um, you know, we have... Uh, you know, time will tell. We've tried to do that this year in dividend strategy with our, you know, uh, Steve referenced uh, PNC Bank, which is a bank that we've added a new position in. And, and um, you know, again, time will tell. But, you know, we believe we're able to take advantage of, a, a, you know, a small but not immature, not insignificant pullback in the stock to, to initiate a position. Well, r- rates have been rising, right? If you think about the short end of the curve, obviously rising. Uh, the long end of the curve has had a little bit of difficulty, but I'm of the camp that I do think the long end of the curve will rise into next year. Um, maybe talk about dividend payers. Um, how do they perform in a rising rate environment? Is that the place you want to be as an equity investor? Yeah, so uh, it is a great and very timely question uh, and something we think everybody needs to be focused on in their portfolios. The answer is, is that what often happens or what we've seen in previous interest rate cycles is that when rates start to rise, uh, you know, investors are not the most patient bunch and they tend to shoot first and ask questions later. And what we see is that investors kind of sell – rates are going up. Investors sell anything income-related, including you know, dividend payers and, and importantly as a subset of that dividend growers. Uh, and then what happens is that people actually sit down and say, wait, if we're actually entering a, a sustainably rising interest rate cycle, where do you want to be? And the answer actually is, is that dividend growers are not the problem but they're a solution. Um, if you think about you know, uh, sensitivity rising rates, duration obviously is what drives a, a, an asset's uh, sensitivity to, to interest rates. You know, the growth serves to shorten up the duration of, of the investment, and that growth in cash flow is a very powerful offset to rising rates. So, you know, it's an interesting thing or sort of a – that we've seen in, in many previous cycles where, again, initially people sell the securities of dividend-paying stocks and dividend growers, but then actually come back to them. And what we've seen in previous cycles is that that initial underperformance actually ultimately has been historically recouped and dividend growers have outperformed throughout the cycle. So we think dividend growers are where people need to be. Uh, and if you think even just taking a step back, not just within stocks but across asset classes, uh, you know, we're, we're – 
we're coming out of a 30 or 40 year bull market in fixed income. Um, and uh, it's a broader conversation about asset allocation and the role of dividend growers in a, in a portfolio, all of which we think bodes well for long-term uh, exposure and weighting of, of dividend growers. But a similar thought process to a floating rate loan, right? Even though you're not benchmarked to LIBOR or something like that, the duration component of there is, is negligible. Um, so if you're going to get that higher income stream, obviously that's going to weather the storm a lot better. I think that's exactly right. Are there any other sectors from a, a dividend yield or, or growth perspective that you're seeing opportunities in? One other area, and this has been an area that's been that's been frustrating for the last 12 to 15 months or so, is, is energy infrastructure. So um, this would be things like MLPs, but actually increasingly these companies are not structured as MLPs, but as corporations. And um, it's been, I think as people know, a, 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 a bumpy ride the last many years. And what's interesting is that if you went back four or five years ago, people would have talked about uh, the growth of shale and there's going to be this renaissance in the United States and oil production is going to grow and the, uh, the infrastructure companies would benefit from that. Um, and four years ago, before the downturn in energy, uh, people um, uh, believe that and believe that uh, and, and price that in quite, quite fully into the shares of these kind of companies. Fast forward to today, you did have a meaningful sell-off in the space. Or, you know, three years ago, one oil went from 110 to 29. But the fundamental thesis actually played out exactly like everybody said, right? The U.S. is now the largest oil producer in the world. Uh, Permian's growing like crazy. Uh, natural gas growth is phenomenal. And um, we may be energy independent in two years. I think that's I, th- th- yeah. It's uh, it's really very staggering. Um, I mean, I think I saw a chart recently that the Permian on a standalone basis, by the end of next year, will be the fifth largest oil producing, if you could treat it as a country, it'd be the fifth largest oil producing country in the world. Wow. And so the fundamental story has played out very well. And actually, many of these companies have, you know, radically improved their balance sheet, changed from partnerships to corporations, their dividend payout ratios are much lower than they've been. Uh, and yet investors have not, still not come back to the, the space. So it's been frustrating. Uh, within dividend strategy, this is an area we did not have a meaningful exposure. If you went back a couple of years ago, in the last 12 to 18 months, we've added a few names here. So it's, you know, it's not a huge position for us, but we probably have uh, three or four percent of the portfolio in energy infrastructure and think it's very well positioned. Um, you know, it's a unique time in that uh, these energy infrastructure stocks are both some of the highest yielding names in our portfolios and some of the fastest growing dividends. And that is, I can't think of another time where I've seen that combination where you look at your portfolio that the best dividend growth you're getting is coming from the ones with also the highest yield. So again, been very frustrating in the last 12 months that it hasn't played out sooner than, than we would, uh, as soon as we would have hoped. But um, the fundamentals will support it and, and we think that it's just a matter of time. And do you think that that obviously investors got burned in in 2016, so they they still have that in their their memory banks? But obviously, I think the growth that we've seen is just going to overwhelm whatever sentiment there is out there, and eventually, investors will tune back into uh, that sector. That's what Ben Graham and Buffett say, right? So, in the short term, the market's a voting machine, in the long run, it's a weighing machine. So, uh, certainly over time, if the fundamentals continue to persist in a favorable way, one way or another, the market will uh, recognize that. And, and you look at the infrastructure, meaning the midstream assets, the the toll roads. So, you know, they're really contingent on how much gas or oil uh, is going through that particular pipeline, not necessarily what the price of the underlying commodity is. That, that's exactly right. And um, I think there's still a lot of people out there who feel that that toll road uh, analogy may not have been as uh, – as, as appropriate or as accurate as people would have hoped previously, but but it is actually largely correct, uh, and that's exactly right. So the kind of names that we're focused on, companies like Enbridge and Williams, uh, these are, you know, Enbridge moves, I think, 40% or 35% of all the oil uh, produced in North America. Williams is, uh, you know, the primary beneficiary of uh, 
production growth in Marcel Shale, which is the lowest cost, most productive natural gas base in in, North, in the United States. Uh, and so, you know, companies that are very well positioned uh, with very long term assets, kind of crown jewel infrastructure. And then, what's interesting, getting back to the comment about you know, sort of the weighing machine versus voting machine. Uh, you're seeing private equity spend a lot of money uh, in energy infrastructure. So they're raising energy, dedicated energy funds. Um, several companies uh, have recently launched or just raised global infrastructure funds. And all of them will kind of, you know, when, you, when, when, when people ask them or in the articles about where they're focused, energy infrastructure is like top one or two areas they're focused in. So, so um, there seems to be a mismatch between how the private markets and, and, you know, private institutional investors are assessing the merits of the sector and how the public markets are currently valuing them. Uh, look, if a lot of these EMP companies have foregone putting money to work in these long-term, you know, energy projects that can bring a lot of supply on. They've opted to go towards Shell. Um, I obviously see that as a, a long-term boost for U.S. production, even though uh, we're close to record levels with the U.S. I think we're we're just going to continue to go higher and higher I, I because think of that. All of the data out there would continue to suggest that there should be strong growth in energy production going forward. And to, bringing up the topic of dividends. Steve, how do you see companies using their capitals? Like, what what type of trends are you you're seeing at the moment? So I, I do see a preference for dividends over buybacks, primarily because of price to book multiples, you know, being higher, such that um, you know you're buying back stock above book. It's not accretive to your book value. But I also see a lot of money going towards M and A, as we discussed earlier, um, as the landscape changes for the financial sector and being more um, efficient, um, tech savvy, uh, scale is very important. So you're seeing a lot of marriages between mid-cap companies in order to compete with the larger companies. Also, you're seeing it as strategically in order to ensure that you have a proper deposit base so you can fund your balance sheet growth. Um, so really, you're seeing an emphasis on, on M&A, which is a bit of a double-edged sword because the M&A history for the banking sector is is mixed. So um, we're very selective on on the companies that are are doing M&A. Um, when we reference stocks like PNC and USB, these are companies that are very disciplined um, in their M&A evaluation. In fact, PNC is fairly adamant about not doing bank, whole bank M&A. So we're very mindful of the management teams and and how they're talking about using this capital and making sure that it aligns with us as shareholders. And obviously, there's a lot of capital to go around with the, the tax cuts. Um, so I'm sure they can do a little bit more M&A, increase their dividends, and maybe even do a little bit of share buybacks all at the same time. Yeah, I mean, that's the hope. I, th- I think the industry is, is overcapitalized, significantly overcapitalized. And you're still in the very early stages of deregulation, allowing these companies to have more flexibility over that capital. And I do think that that's underappreciated by the market. Um, and over time, should they, the managers of these companies be good stewards of capital, that should show up in you know surpri- positive surprises in shareholder value. Now, I want to close out the, the podcast uh, and talk about something that everybody talks about on the news cycles, constantly talking about it, which is FANG. Or maybe I should say FANG plus M, which would be Microsoft. I don't know how you can make that as a different acronym. I'm sure somebody would have done it at this time if they could have. Um, but none of those really... We'll keep you in strategy, <laughs> not in marketing. <laughs> uh, they don't pay any dividends. Um, how does that impact you as a, as a portfolio manager, Mike? Just to be clear, Microsoft, which has performed like a FANG, actually does pay a dividend, and we've owned it and done well with it. Um, yeah, the FANG phenomenon, I think, is, uh, you know, I think we're all aware of it. Um, you know, I think, you know, everybody on the street knows that, that these handful of stocks have done, you know, exceedingly well the last couple of years. And as a dividend investor, it can be a bit challenging in that some of the a handful of these names do not pay dividends. And so from a relative perspective, relative performance perspective, that, that is a headwind. Um, that said, what we've, what we've seen is that historically, and this may feel uh, counterintuitive or, or even um, like a stretch today, but 
But while it currently feels like there's this inevitability that, of course, these stocks will just continue to, you know, keep going up at this meteoric rate because the world changing so quickly and there's just a handful of winners. Um, <clears throat> historically, if we go back over time, most of these cycles have ended up uh, – being just that, which is cycles, which isn't to take away from anything that these companies are doing or to say that they're not going to be continue to be terrific companies and terrific stocks. But historically, if you look back, periods of cyclical sort of meaningful outperformance have generally been reverted, uh, which again is not to say that we're calling a, a top two or anything like that. But, uh, you know, there's a lot of, a lot of sayings in, 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 in investing in Wall Street and, you know, trees don't grow to the sky. And so, you know, it has been a bit of a challenge. You know, for us, we have other funds at Clearbridge that have participated very nicely and done very well and and have deftly navigated that. But for dividend-focused investors, you know, it's a, it's a point in the cycle like anything else. And this would kind of remind me of the, the late 1990s uh, where I'm sure dividend growers had underperformed. But obviously, once you had the economy rollover, the top of the dot-com bubble, you, you had some meme reversion go happen at that point. Yeah, and listen, I mean, there are some similarities. There's some big differences, too. And back then, people were talking about price to eyeballs and stuff like that. And now many of these companies are meaningful cash generators and, you know, are hugely profitable. Um, But it is also an interesting point. And I feel like what's interesting is that at times like this where there's been such a strong run for so long, it feels like an inevitability that this will have to continue. Um, and and the world ends up generally being more dynamic and uh, and markets more competitive and and not just the stock market but the actual markets these companies compete in and technologies you know changing very quickly all the time um, and so so it ends up just being uh, predictions are tough especially about the future um, Yogi Bear right there uh, yeah yeah I love that one just a quick tidbit for everybody listening since 1990 if you look at dividend growers versus people that uh, companies that don't pay a dividend have stable paying dividends or dividend cutters, dividend growers have had the highest return in the lowest volatility profile out of all of those other cohorts. So hopefully we'll get mean reversion. We'll, we'll have to see when that point of inflection is. But Mike, Steve, thank you so much for, for joining me in the booth here today. Um, I think uh, the listeners really uh, looked at, liked your comments and hopefully have a, a better outlook on what to expect in the dividend space and the financial space. Great. Thanks a lot for inviting us. Thanks. And uh, thank you all for for listening to the latest ClearBridge podcast. And we hope to have you on next month uh, for ClearBridge's podcast. So thank you and take care. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of September 7th, 2018, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics referenced will have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither ClearBridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from the any use of this information.